Hi, and welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal situation or circumstances. So today we're going to have a look at how to find stocks with sustainable income. We, we are, but maybe we should talk about something that is not sustainable first. Okay. And that's lockdown. So how, <laughs> I mean, we're in like week, I don't know what, how's, how's your lockdown going? Uh, well, as you know, I'm studying, so I feel like it's kind of helping me that I don't have anything else to do except study and work. So okay. <laughs> I'm doing okay, I guess. I mean, so. that sounds that sounds pretty miserable. I know, but I'd like to see my parents. That would be nice. But yeah. yeah. Are, are, you, uh, are you watching the Olympics at all? I am. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's entertaining at least. Julia, so a friend of mine that you know, mm-hmm. and you, I think, I think it was the first time you met Julia. You were really nice and you said, I like her better than you, which is what you say <laughs> literally when you meet anyone I know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, she was just talking about like, this is going to actually be a lot worse once the Olympics are over. Yeah. Cause then there'll be like actually nothing to do when the Olympics are almost 24 seven. So. Exactly. Exactly. But you're getting your jab tomorrow. I'm getting my job tomorrow. So, so my first one. Yeah. So, and you're getting yours soon in like two weeks. Yeah. yeah. So at least I don't know, maybe a pathway out. But anyway, <laughs> that was very solemn. But <laughs> I know, I know. Okay. So we've got the unsustainable situation of <laughs> lockdown, but we're going to talk about sustainable dividends, mm-hmm. and this is something that a lot of investors are looking for at this moment. And you know. We've talked about we've talked about income and investing shares in a number of these different episodes, of course, and we've talked about this substitution effect, right? And it's just the fact that investors are turning to equities for dividends because yields are so low on fixed interests and other asset classes like like obviously cash, and you know people are just not getting the returns that they need to sustain a regular income from their assets. Yeah, exactly right, Mark. And with interest rates being so low for many income investors, getting attractive yields from fixed income investments just seems as futile as trying to draw blood from a stone. Okay. There you go. <laughs> like the Sorcerer's Stone, right? Yeah. Um, you know, they had to name it Sorcerer's Stone because they people in the US couldn't say philosophers. <laughs> okay. Well, How's that, mate? We will, we will add that to the jokes you make about not, not Americans so much as just me, but um, <laughs> but that's good. That's good. Um, okay. And the other thing, of course, is we love hearing from people. And we have received a couple questions about dividends off the back of a couple of the previous episodes we did. So we covered dividends in that episode where we talked about what makes a successful investor. So that's when I talked about my best friend, the spreadsheet. Um, and you know how my spreadsheet taught me about the power of compounding. And then, uh, and then we had like I'm surprised that you don't like my spreadsheet more than you like me as well. I guess I haven't formally introduced you yet. No, I haven't uh, seen your spreadsheet. I'm just in, heard because I'm embarrassed <laughs> to uh, to show anybody yet. Um, but then we talked about um, we had that episode where we talked about once again embarrassing for me if you're a balance sheet or an income statement. So we talked about dividends there. Yeah. So <laughs> that that little summary. It, yeah. If anyone's a first time listener, it's just going to seem like we're a bit crazy. Yeah, yeah, but that's okay. <laughs> crazy is entertaining. Yeah. And I think everyone's a little bit crazy with lockdown right now. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know what our excuse was before. But, uh, 
yeah. Anyway, let's uh, let's get into this. Let's hope that this actually gets a little better. But if you cut through the craziness of my spreadsheet and comparing people to accounting statements, the point that we want to talk about today is that generating passive income from your portfolio is a really attractive concept. And, um, you know, many investors are looking for passive income. So all of us are trying to improve our lives. That's why we invest. And generating income outside of our day-to-day jobs is a pathway to doing that while moving towards financial independence, which everyone wants. So let's start with the basic concept. So what's a dividend? Yeah. So when we look at the ASX, it seems like dividends are everywhere. Around 90% of the companies in the ASX 200 make regular distributions of cash to shareholders, and many smaller companies also pay dividends. The yield of the ASX 200 is around 2.4%, which means that for every $1,000 invested, $24 of income will be generated. And it's worth noting that Australian companies tend to pay higher dividends than foreign companies, and Australia does have a higher yield than other global markets. Yeah. And as we've said many times, common stocks derive their value from future cash flows that are generated by the company. And dividends are a byproduct of this cash flow and represent a decision made by a company to return cash to the owners of the company, and that's us as shareholders. So financial theory tells us that returning cash to shareholders through a dividend is not as tax efficient as a buyback, and the companies that earn a high return on capital are potentially better off reinvesting in the business. But people love dividends, and I will say that I am very much in this case. So to me, dividends feel tangible because it's money going into your account and growing dividends feels like a step towards financial independence because, of course, your income stream is increasing. And if we go back and we look at dividends in terms of historical performance, we see they are critically important. So the proportion of total return that comes from dividends historically from the ASX is close to 60%. Yeah, so dividends are not just powerful in terms of delivering potential returns. They can also be practical in meeting investors' real-world objectives. Dividends help give investors the ability to use corporate earnings as they see fit so they can fund portfolio withdrawals during retirement, to meet other personal financial obligations, to reinvest in the company that paid it, or to invest in other areas of the market. All right. So hopefully we've established that for many investors, dividends are an attractive component of that investment. And it's worth noting, though, that a dividend is not a contractual obligation. There's no scenario where you will have guaranteed dividends from common stocks. So this episode will be focused on the factors that investors can look for in a stock that may indicate that they are a strong candidate for sustaining those dividends into the future. Yeah. So as investors, we need to always go back to the basics. So when you buy a share, you're buying an ownership stake in a company and you need to look at that investment in the same way an owner would. As we said before, a dividend is paying shareholders a portion of the cash flows that are generated by a company. So the first thing we need is to make sure we're investing in a company that's going to continue to generate cash flows in the future and grow those cash flows. We also say that paying a dividend is a choice by a company. As owners of a company, we entrust management and a board of directors to look after our interests and make these choices of what to do with the cash flows that a company generates. These are called capital allocations, and this is when management and the board decides to either return cash to us as the owners of the company through a dividend or share buyback or to reinvest them in the company or pay off debt. Now, these are choices by management, but these choices are influenced by other conditions at the company, which include how much cash there is available to allocate and other obligations like paying off debt. So we have to examine the financial condition the company is in. So let's start with looking at its ability to continue to generate cash flows. 
Okay, that is a good place to start. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> assessing a company's ability to continue to generate cash flows and grow them into the future is, of course, not an exercise that can be done in a vacuum. So capitalism, at the end of the day, involves competition, and that means that there are going to be competitors for those future cash flows. They're going to compete by trying to create a better product, and they're going to compete on price. So both of these factors are going to threaten the company's ability to generate these cash flows. If a company loses market share for the product, that means less cash flow. If they have to lower prices, it means less cash flow. So now we know the answer to everything is less cash flow, right? <laughs> um, so if we want to step back and assess how the company will hold up against competition, we need to look at what their competitive advantage or economic moat, as we've often talked about, is. So we speak about moats quite a lot. But in short, they were popularized by Buffett, Warren Buffett. Drink. Uh, drink, exactly. <laughs> and they're really at the heart of Morningstar's methodology. So a moat is the ability of a business to pull up the drawbridge to defend long-term profits and market share. So get that drawbridge moat. See how that all works together? Yeah. yeah. Okay. You're really painting a picture in my head, mate. <laughs> I know. It'd be great if we had these things on video so you could, look at, uh, could see how you look at me. Um, <laughs> it is just with absolute disgust. Um, but anyway, once this drawbridge is pulled up, um, it allows this company to defend long-term profit and market share. And because of this, they're able to deliver excess returns above the cost of capital. So in very simple terms, they're able to maintain their market share because they have a competitive advantage. And they're able to defend their long-term profit or margin that they make. Yeah, and this is important because dividends are drawn from the profit a company generates. In saying this, though, moats are also great for companies that decide to retain earnings for expansion instead of paying it out. Moats suggest that these additional investments into expansion should earn a good return that will be reflected in the future through more dividend-paying power. Yeah. And so at Morningstar, we identify five different sources of economic moat. So we'll go through them quickly. Uh, the first is intangible assets. So these can include brands, patents, or government licenses that just contractually keep competitors at bay. So an example of this in our coverage is Sydney Airport, a place I wish I was going more, but does not look likely in the future. So Sydney Airport has a narrow economic moat based on intangible assets in the form of operating rights, which expire in 2097. Um, and, you know, you're so young, you'll probably be alive by then. But I'll be long gone by 2097. And if we think about this, um, it basically means that, you know, there's this operating license and it'd be extremely difficult to get another one and require almost endless resources and red tape for any competitor to enter the market. So you wouldn't just be able to decide one day that you're going to build a major international airport really close to Sydney and get granted the rights for the next 75 years or so. Yeah, so we'll move on to the next one, and that's cost advantage. Firms that can provide goods and services at lower costs have big advantages over rivals as they can either undercut them um, on price or sell them at the same price and earn a higher profit margin. So when we're looking at moats based on cost advantage, generally it's because of economies of scale, basically saving costs by increasing production. And a company that has a narrow moat due to its cost advantages is AGL. They have low-cost thermal generation capacity, and that contributes to the vast majority of their earnings. So its low-cost coal-fired power stations include its Loyang Brown Coal Power Station in Victoria. It has the lowest running cost of thermal generation in the Australian national electricity market, and this is unlikely to be knocked off the top spot anytime soon. Yeah, I bet you that's something you didn't know before you researched yeah, no. this. <laughs> Every time I read these analyst reports, I just think, how much research do analysts actually do? They have to learn about power plants and coal power stations and yeah, riveting yeah. stuff. 
Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> I guess I won't have to worry about you taking a job as an analyst. <laughs> yeah. All right. The other the other important thing from AGL, which we learned from our analysts, is that these brown coal reserves can power the plant until its scheduled closure in 2048. So once again, plenty of runway there. And this, of course, insulates AGL from commodity prices. Morningstar Premium is designed to help you reach your investing goals. Our coverage spans over 50,000 securities and 2,000 funds and ETFs. Sign up to a four-week free trial through the link in the episode notes to access our global equity best ideas for our top picks across borders. Find shares with sustainable, above-average dividend payouts and the best opportunities at home with five-star Aussie stocks. A Morningstar Premium subscription includes a ShareSide investor plan, allowing you to track all of your investment holdings in one place. And take advantage of ShareSide's investment performance and tax reporting that has been built specifically for the needs of self-directed investors. If you love premium after your four-week trial and choose to subscribe, your subscription may be tax-deductible if you derive income from the share market. Sign up for a free trial today. So let's move on to the next source of moat, which is switching costs. I don't know if I don't know if I have a favorite moat source, but I kind of like switching costs. Is this like a BuzzFeed personality test? We should make something like this through SurveyMonkey and send it to everyone yeah, listening. Yeah, exactly. What moat are you? I yeah. haven't decided yet, but I'm into maybe switching costs or maybe the network effect. I okay, don't know. Okay. We'll see. Any but reason why or just... I have lots of reasons, but okay. uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get into them later. We'll okay. have a whole episode on what mode are you. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So switching costs refer to the inconveniences or expenses associated with a customer switching from one product to another. Yeah. So this is where you see sticky purchases. So think of how much of a pain it is to switch super funds or banks. Sometimes it's for your own good to do it, but it's painful. Uh, so our example in our coverage is ComputerShare, which is a stock transfer company. It gets its moat from being the largest registry service in the world. So for computer shares customers, the potential financial benefits of switching to another registry, they're almost always outweighed by the potential operation and regulatory risks of doing so. Yeah. And so obviously these hurdles tend to protect the profit of these companies because it's a pain for customers to leave them. Yeah. So maybe that's why I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Should we move on to your next favorite? That I don't want to be left. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the network effect. Exactly. Okay. So the network effect is when the value of a good or service increases because more people are using it. The classic example for this is social media. You wouldn't sign up for a social media app if there was no one else using it. So yeah, what's the point? Um, Facebook derives so much of its value from having a large user base. And we use Facebook because our mates and family are all on Facebook. So yeah, that's the network effect. Yeah. Okay. So one more, and that is efficient scale. And efficient scale applies to companies that serve limited markets where there's a small number of competitors. And, you know, the reason new companies or competitors don't want to enter that market is because there isn't that big of an, big of an opportunity for success. So, you know, one of the companies that meets those criteria is Telstra. Yeah, and Telstra has a huge amount of infrastructure assets. The capital costs required for a new entrant into the market to replicate even a small part of this infrastructure ownership scale and brand power would be extremely difficult, especially in a relatively small country like Australia and in a relatively mature industry like the telecommunications market. 
yeah, so Telstra has a moat because of its efficient scale. And typically, as Shawnee said, high sunk costs and mature demand. So new entrants struggle to enter the industries in which these stocks operate. And uh, and that allows them to maintain this competitive advantage and profitability. Mm-hmm. So those are our five sources of moat. When you're looking for income stocks, finding these competitive advantages in the stocks indicate that they're able to protect their earnings. And in some cases, foster earnings growth because they have an edge against competitors that allows them to grow and protect market share. Okay. So we've looked at a company's ability to maintain and grow cash flows, but now we need to examine factors that may prevent management and the board from making that decision to continue to return cash to shareholders and, of course, grow the amount that's returned. So it's really important for investors, even dividend-oriented investors, to think of not just maintaining the current dividend, but also growing the dividend. So let's say you find a $25 stock that pays annual dividends of a dollar a share. That's a 4% yield, which isn't too shabby. But if that dividend never grows, your income return is fixed at 4% based on your purchase price. So by contrast, an increasing stream of, di- of income is far more useful than a flat one in an inflationary world. And a growing dividend is likely to result in capital appreciation over time as it'll reflect growing cash flows. So we'll discuss a few ratios that can help you understand dividend growth, why it's important, and the trade-offs you're making. This is where we need to turn to financial statements, which I know your favorite part, of course, is the joke that I always make, Shawnee, about how your mother thinks you're an accountant. Yeah, love which, that one. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's funny yeah. <laughs> that, that she literally describes your job as something that it's not. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I have no idea how to describe my job either. So. Yeah. No, me neither. And I, and I work with you. But uh, yeah. I'm not sure I pick an accountant. But anyway, an accountant would know stuff like this. Yeah. So we're going to start with the payout ratio. And this might be the single most important statistic in evaluating a dividend stability. But you know, there's always a bit of tension involved in uh, in the payout ratio. So payout ratio is the proportion of earnings being paid out as dividends. So all else being equal, a higher payout ratio will generate a higher dividend yield. But it's important to keep in mind that lower payout ratios are less risky than higher ones. Yeah, and this is because lower payout ratios are easier to maintain. So there's always a bit of tension. You should look for balance, current yield versus stability, as well as current yield versus future growth. And the payout ratio is actually pretty simple. It's the proportion of earnings being paid out as dividends. So if a company is earning $2 a share annually and paying dividends at a $1.20 rate, the payout ratio is 60%, which is $1.20 divided by $2. The inverse of the payout ratio, 40% in this case, tells us how far earnings could drop before the dividend would no longer be covered by earnings. Okay, so why don't we use an example, and hopefully that will illustrate, bring the payout ratio to life, you know? (laughs) So um, let's look at BAPCOR, and we can look at the historical payout ratio. So the payout ratio, and this is a good thing, shows stability. So around half of BAPCOR's earnings are being paid out in dividends. Their payout ratio is lower than the average payout of the Morningstar Australia GRAUD index, where it's about 74%. But Karen Wallace, who is Morningstar's Director of Investor Education, explains that this isn't always a bad sign. Yeah. So the lower payout ratio means that there's a margin of safety that would allow a company to miss its earnings target or have its earnings fall and still be able to pay out its dividend. And it also means that there may be room for management to increase that dividend over time. And this is especially important when we encounter volatility and economic strain, which during long investment horizons is inevitable. So this stability is pretty appealing to investors seeking stable income. Yeah, yeah. So exactly right, Sonny. So again, this payout ratio gives us a couple of insights. First is that there's room for growth. So 
even if the company doesn't grow earnings, they could potentially raise that payout ratio and return more money to uh, to shareholders. And then, of course, if earnings fall, they could still cover that with lower earnings, right? So at around 50%, earnings would have to fall by half until they sort of bump up against that payout ratio of 100%, which means all of their earnings go uh, go out to a dividend. And so the other thing is that the company continue to grow because it can reinvest money back in the business. So if half of BAPCorp's earnings are available to be invested back into the business, um, it means that hopefully the company can continue to grow. As it grows, it can pay out more dividends. And so what we're looking for is flexibility. Um, when some companies might have to face really tough choices if they don't have as much flexibility with their dividend. Yeah, and we've seen this with the banks in the last couple of years. Yeah, and that's, of course, right, Chani. But because this is investing, there is, of course, nuance involved in everything. And we do need to make a point here around when the payout ratio doesn't work. So companies in certain industries are able to maintain payout ratios in excess of 100%. So on the surface, that means that they're paying out more than what they earn each year. And, you know, just like your own life, that if you are uh, if you're spending more than you make every year, it generally doesn't seem sustainable. But the reason they're able to do this is because there are differences between cash flows generated by a company and earnings. So earnings involve non-cash charges like depreciation. And depreciation occurs when a company has a tangible asset on their balance sheet that is slowly written off over its useful life. Now, the example that I always use that hopefully makes this a little less confusing is Qantas, right? So let's say Qantas goes out and buys an airplane. So there's a large cost they pay up front for that airplane, and they expect that asset, the airplane, to last for a certain amount of time. So for simplicity's sake, let's say 10 years. And you'll know more about this when you're a natural pilot, Johnny. Exactly. <laughs> so let's say that um, they paid $100 million for this airplane. They expect it to last 10 years. So they would depreciate that plane over the 10-year period by having a non-cash charge of earnings of $10 million a year. So earnings are reduced by $10 million a year, but that isn't any cash that's actually going out the door, meaning it doesn't affect their ability to pay a dividend. So companies in certain industries with lots of assets on the balance sheet, like a real estate investment trust, for example, that owns lots of buildings, or a utility company that has lots of power plants, may be able to maintain very high payout ratios because they're still generating enough cash. So this is just something to keep in mind. So what I would do is if you see a very high payout ratio, compare it to other companies in the same sector and industry to see if it's normal. Yeah, so let's move on to the next tell of stocks that may have sustainable dividends, and that's strong finances. Dividends can be paid to common stockholders only if all other financial obligations are satisfied first. So banks, bondholders, suppliers, employees, pensions, the tax office, and even hybrid holders. So basically, these stockholders are last in the pay line, and an investor would typically want to see that this line is not too long. Yeah, so exactly. So a balance sheet can give you a point in time snapshot of assets and liabilities. So the safest company is, of course, a company with no debt and that has cash on the balance sheet um, or even more cash than they do have debt. So no net debt. But this can also go the other way. So some companies are without debt because they're unable to get it. Um, so for an example, like a small mining company that lenders find too risky. So if a company has debt, it's important to understand when it needs to be paid back. So there's a big difference between companies with debt that 
isn't maturing for a while and companies that have debt maturing in the near future. So let's take a look at a company with a really strong balance sheet and we can look at Microsoft. So Microsoft is like many tech companies that generate huge amounts of cash and don't really know what to do with it all. So at the end of 2020, Microsoft had $136 billion in cash and short-term investments and had around $59 billion in debt. So they pay off around $15 billion a year in dividends. So even without any future earnings, they have a big net cash position that they could use to continue to pay dividends. So the problem really lies if debt matures in bad capital environments because it can be really difficult to refinance. So in some cases, companies may not be able to even cover their interest payments and can't borrow more money. So we want to look at the balance sheet to make sure that it's healthy. And without a healthy balance sheet, you can't really rely on dividend sustainability. So this goes back to the fact that a dividend is a choice by management. If they're faced with really high debt and interest expenses, they may not be in a position to make a choice to pay out dividends to shareholders. And that could mean they are forced to cut the dividend. So important. Let's look at some of the indicators of balance sheet strength. We can use Telstra as our example. Mark, did you um, want to start with the interest coverage ratio? I, I would love to. You okay. know how much I love Telstra, <laughs> sure. right? Um, okay. So the interest coverage ratio lets us know how easily a company can pay back their interest expenses on their outstanding debt. So you calculate it by dividing the company's earnings before interest and tax by the company's interest expense for the same period. So any result below one means that the company you're looking at can't meet its current interest payment obligations. So we're using this Telstra example. So what's the interest coverage ratio for Telstra, Shani? Yeah, so Telstra sits at 4.29, so it can pretty easily cover their interest obligations as it earns 4.29 times more money before interest and tax than it needs to pay to service its debt. All right, let's move on to the quick ratio. And the quick ratio is used to gauge a company's liquidity. In good times and bad, cash is great. And this ratio compares the total amount of cash and cash equivalents to liabilities. And what this is telling us is the company's capacity to pay their current liabilities without additional financing. And Telstra is quick ratio 0.61, and this indicates that it cannot fully finance short-term liabilities. Okay, but the key to a quick ratio is context. So you can find this by looking at the debt maturity schedule. So the debt maturity schedule is staggered and long dated with defensive earnings bolstering Telstra's position. So what does that actually mean? It means they don't have to pay back this debt for a long time. Um, and it also means because it's staggered, they don't have to pay it off back all at one time, right? So these maturities are spread out across the years. All right. Lucky last for the ratios. You like my little Aussie expression there, Shani? Yeah. <laughs> we have the debt to equity ratio, and that looks at the relative proportion of shareholders' equity and debt that's used to finance a company's assets. So it's calculated by dividing a company's total liability by its shareholders' equity. This ratio indicates the ability of shareholder equity to cover outstanding debt. So this ratio shows that Telstra isn't highly leveraged or primarily financed with debt because it has a debt to equity ratio of 1.38. So debt to equity ratios, they ideally sit between 1 and 1.5, but this can vary from industry to industry. A higher debt to equity ratio may indicate that the company uses debt to finance growth. And for lenders and investors, this may mean a higher risk of the company failing to produce enough to repay debts during volatility or stress. Inversely, a very low debt to equity ratio, closer to zero, can indicate that a company isn't realizing profit it could gain from growing operations. During volatility, a stable debt to equity ratio can can also provide more chance of success upon recovery. 
Okay. So it is important, of course, to mention that ratios aren't the be-all and end-all. So they're basically a hand-on-the-forehead temperature check, and they can give you some insights into the company's financial strength. So healthy ranges can vary from sector and market, and they shouldn't really be treated as one-size-fits-all. So you should make sure that you're looking at these indicators along other indicators such as growth and profitability and operating performance. So Dividends, of course, as we said, are attractive to many investors. And if you're listening to this podcast episode, you probably have at least a slight interest in this investment objective. More than finding a company that looks great for sustainable income, it's important to understand where it fits into your portfolio and whether it aligns with your investment policy statement and ultimately your goals. Yeah. So income for sustainable investing, it's important to look at the competitive advantages that a company has. So moats, we spoke about the five sources of moat that Morningstar identified. So that was switching costs and networking effect, which are your favorites, Mark, intangible assets, efficient scale and cost advantage. We also want companies with strong, healthy balance sheets and strong financials. Um, but as Mark said, of course, looking at growth, profitability and operating performance as well for context. Okay, so maybe you can come up with, by our next episode, your favorite moat source. Okay. <laughs> and, how, and how about this? Remember, you're going to dress up as a zombie company for Halloween. Mm -hmm. I could dress up as a moat source. Okay. It's going to be a wild Halloween Conference, party yeah. here at uh, here at Morningstar. Um, but anyway, thank you guys very much for joining. We hope that this episode provided a little bit of information about things you can look at if you're an income investor and you're trying to generate growing and sustainable income from your investments. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the next episode. So we would love you to share this podcast with any friends or family that you have, um, even ones you like. And uh, then we would love a comment or a rating on the podcast app. And once again, I will give you 50% off an in-person conference ticket if you send me an email and put up that rating and comment. And we'll give you a free ticket to the online version of the conference as well. So any final thoughts, Shani? Nothing, mate. Okay. Yeah. Next, next time, or actually when people hear this you episode. You put me on the spot with these final thoughts. I was just telling you now. <laughs> okay. Well, fine. I'm sorry for putting you on the spot. Once, uh, once people listen to this episode, you will be half vaccinated. That's exciting. It is exciting. So anyway, thank you guys for joining us and hope everybody is safe and healthy. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.